0: Welcome, everyone, to the next riveting episode of The Objectivist and The Vegan Podcast. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, um, all the normal channels. I always try to guilt everyone into giving me five stars. So no matter what you do today, like I always say, it takes two seconds to go to iTunes and rate us. Um, this is our um, supposed to be every other week feature called The Objectivist Unplugged. My co-host, Jack, is off off in the ether somewhere in his other job, so he leaves me alone every other week to try and fill some space with whoever, whatever wonderful personalities I can find. And I found some good ones so far, but none of them have been quite as personal to me as this next one is going to be. Today I will be interviewing one of the most genuine, beautiful people in the world. She's a writer, researcher, teacher, and author of many wildly entertaining books, all pertaining to a person that has become the cent- one of the central focuses of her professional life, and that's John Lennon of the Beatles, as if I actually had to say that. It surprised me to think there's anybody who doesn't know who John Lennon is. But um, I interviewed her for the first time at the Fest for Beatles fans so many years ago. I think I ca- calculated it, and we've known each other for almost a decade. But one of my favorite quotes that I've uh, from the interview that I did last time is I asked her about um, – these historical novels she's writing about, John Lennon. And I asked, um, what's the responsibility of someone who is researching and writing about real people? And she said, I think you have to be responsible. If you make up things, then no one is ready because that's not the truth and you're dealing with someone's life. I don't want someone writing a book about my life and putting things in it that aren't true. Um, I want people to know John. I want them to know what he was really like, not what I think he was like and our guest is Jude Sutherland Kessler, live from Louisiana. How are you, Jude?
1: Oh, that touched my heart. I am great. Thank you, Stephen, so much for having me on your show. It is really an honor. I mean, truly, we have known each other for nine or 10 years. I know it's frightening, isn't it? Every year, you just go from strength to strength, and I am so proud of your upcoming book. You said it'll be out around Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, congratulations. Thank everybody.
0: you so much. And yours, um, your, I should go through the litany of the three books you've already published. Should Have Been There, Shivering Inside, She Loves You, and Should Have Known Better is going to be out relatively soon, I think, right?
1: Right. It'll be out the first week of August. We're actually going to have book release party at the Chicago Fest for Beatles
0: fans. Oh, really? So-
1: Hopefully, you'll be there for the big party.
0: Oh, yeah, this summer I'm definitely planning. I've been, I've taken the past few years off because it just, you know, it's one of those things where those weekends, the past few years, have always been booked for me. So this week, I'm going to clear my schedule for the weekend this year because I'm not going to miss it. Yay!
1: (laughs) I love it. Well, it is, it's a very strange genre. Um, It is something that has not been done literally for generations. These are. Um, historical narratives. They're they're not historical fiction or historical novels. Back in the days of the Greeks, when they would write their histories, um, when Thucydides did the history of the Peloponnesian War, they would write them as narratives, but they would not deviate an iota from what exactly happened. They wouldn't add to or subtract for the sake of making anyone look better or look worse, or to insert their own opinion into it, they would tell exactly what happened for better or for worse, but they tell it as a narrative. And that's what I've done. Now, when I started with the very first volume, um, should have been there. I didn't realize that Beatles fans would want to know with every single sentence You know, where did you get that from? How do I know that's true? So I didn't footnote every sentence, I just listed my sources for each chapter. Well, when I saw there was so much question about is this fiction or is this truth, I began to footnote. The second book had almost a thousand footnotes. The third book, which was the story of 1963, had four thousand six hundred footnotes. Oh, wow. And should have known better already has two hundred and fifty pages. Oh wow. Pages of footnotes. Oh wow. So every sentence is footnoted with at least three sources. So you're getting exactly what they wore, what they ate, what they said, what they did. You just read it like a story.
0: That's what I absolutely adore about you is that it's so meticulously researched. And I find it's something that in this era of, you know fact is fiction and fiction is fact. It's nice to be somebody who holds the truth at such a high level.
1: Well, it is a very tedious job and I'll I'll give you just one example from last night's research. The Beatles are right now in studio um, at EMI and they are recording the latter portion of Beatles for Sale, their LP, second LP of 1964. Prior to the North American tour, They went into studio in August and they recorded some of the cover songs that they already knew very well. And then George Martin tasked them with taking their spare time, ha ha ha, (laughs) on the North American tour to write the other songs for the LP. And he told them the day that they got home... Be ready to come back into studio and start recording because that LP had to be out for Christmas release. Oh. So, you know, they get home on the, they leave America on the 21st of September. They play their last concert. They get up the next morning. They get on the plane and they head back to England. By the 29th of September, they are in EMI recording. They record on the 29th and on the 30th, they come back to do some work. And there's a question of who overdubs the lead guitar part in every little thing. Well, Lewison doesn't say, Andy Babowick doesn't say, Ken Womack says John does the overdub. Uh, Barry Miles and John C. Wynn in Way Beyond Compare, the recording legacy of the Beatles, says it was George who did the overdub. And Bruce Spicer in the Beatles for Sale on Parlophone Records says... I think it was John, but no one knows for sure. (laughs) Well, I make sure I list all of that documentation rather than just deciding who it was so people know there's a question mark there. I mean, is that nitpicky or what?
0: Well, it's a wonderful thing because I was just reading um, a man who did a biography of the Beatles by the name of Bob Spitz, who I'm sure you know. Um, He just published a few years ago a biography of Julia Child. And at the end of it, you know, I was going to go to the end of it and say, hey, I want to see what some of these sources are. And he said, um, oh, there wasn't enough. The publisher said they didn't want to devote the amount of research into it. So you can go online and go to this website and you can download um, the sources. And I went to go download it and it wasn't there. There was nothing. It said, (laughs) so that, you know, the research is pretty much lost to the ages. So the fact that you want to be so meticulous about it is something that makes he, me happy because it's either, you know, I've read some biographies where there's no citations, n- um, no footnotes, no research of any kind, though they claim to have people saying things at a certain time, especially, okay. you know, once upon a time, that used to be the norm in some biographies, especially show business biographies. You would just have the absolute nothing at the end. You'd be like, where did, well, how did they get? These quotes and these exacting things, but you, like you said, you don't only give what happened in the footnotes. You give, you know, every other person's opinion on it and say how you came to the consensus, which is a brilliant, brilliant way of doing it.
1: Right. I I love answering those technical questions. At the end of every chapter, I have a section just called notes. And uh, my editor, one of my editors, Jacob Michael, loved the notes so much that he said, I think you ought to put the word notes in bold with several exclamation marks. (laughs) 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 So I do, and it's things like, um, was Brian Epstein present in the studio when uh, the Please Please Me LP was made? Some people place him there, others do not. Others say that he arrived in the evening bringing Dick James with him. And we go through exactly what every person was doing on that day, what the historical records show, and actually it turned out he actually was there and he did arrive in the evening and he did bring Dick James with him. But it took a lot of doing to look at his diary, figure out what he had planned for that day, look at some of Tony Barrow's notations and get to the bottom of it. So you have to really be an investigator.
0: Brian Epstein is one of those really, really interesting people in the Beatles' lives that, you know, he came into their lives, brought them to the top, and then eventually he killed himself, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, no one knows what really happened in the end. It it was an accidental overdose. Some strange things happened on that night. Brian had invited a lot of friends out to his country home for the weekend, and in the middle of, of the party and with all these people gathered in his home, he gets in his car and leaves and goes back to London. So we don't know if he was having a tryst with someone that really upset him and he came home unhappy or if he, was, he had been having trouble with the fact that the Beatles had quit touring and he felt that his role in the Beatles had been depleted to the point of them almost not needing him anymore, which of course they needed him desperately. You know what John said when he found out that Brian was dead? No, I, no. I can't repeat it on a radio oh, show. Oh, no. No, you know, trust
0: me, you can say anything on this show.
1: Oh, <laughs> he, he said, you know, Brian's dead, we're fucked. Yep. <laughs> So, and it was true. I mean, from then on, things started going downhill. But when Brian returns to his home and he locks himself in his bedroom, and of course, the next day he's found dead. Did he accidentally overdose? Had he been drinking and took pills on top of it? No one one knows. But the legend is that once he heard Sergeant Peppers, he knew that he was really not crucial to their to their success anymore. And he began to feel more and more of a Johnson and Flowers say, huh. you know, Eppy, I love you. And, you know, we need you because he was he was severely depressed.
0: Oh yeah, I I um read an older biography of him. I'm sure you know the name of it. I read it quite a while ago. And it was just, you know, there is some things where you're just not going to be able to know exactly what happened with him, because at the root, he was a very, very private person.
1: Yeah. And uh, it had to be. Oh, I exactly. His it, life. we look at today, it makes me just laugh when people say, oh, nothing has changed in the last 40 years. We all have the same prejudices we used to have. Oh, yeah. Uh, no. Um, I live in a small town in northern Louisiana and I walked into a restaurant the other night and all sorts of couples were together. Men and women, men and men, women and women, white and black. No one thought a thing about it. No one even looked. It, 40 years ago, it was illegal to be homosexual. Oh, exactly. Be, being gay was anything but gay.
0: And, and being in an interracial, being, interracial relationship was illegal.
1: I he, he lived a difficult life being Jewish and gay in the early 1960s was a tough road to hoe.
0: Exactly. Um, th- this was one of those strange kismet things. And uh, hopefully you know the names I'm about to bring up, but I was listening to, to another podcast today, and um, I was, it was about the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And they said a really interesting thing. Right after their first performance on Ed Sullivan, um, a comedy team did, had their uh, TV debut, and their names were Charlie Brill and Mitzi McCall. And earlier that day, they had done the dress rehearsal, and Ed Sullivan hated their act and told them to change it at the last minute. And suffice it to say, their new material didn't go over very well. So you know the Beatles had you know one of the biggest nights of their lives. Then all of America was tuned in, you know, staying on the same station. And then all of a sudden they see these two who actually very funny people just completely bomb. And I was wondering if they came up in your research at all.
1: Yes, in fact, I, in the third book, She Loves You, we go all through that Ed Sullivan broadcast. You, you start at the very beginning, each act, bit by bit, and Brilla McCall, of course, are right in there. And, you know, I've seen that act, I don't know, 20, 30 times, and I thought it was pretty funny. So, I guess maybe my, my comedy judgment <laughs> lacks, <laughs> lacks some validity, but... Um, I didn't realize that they had been told they had to change the act right before they went on. I mean, it is for the girls who were already swept up in Beatlemania. I was very fortunate to hear about the Beatles in December of 1963 before they went on Ed Sullivan because several of my friends had import records. We were already big Beatles fans. We just wanted the acts that were around the Beatles to disappear. (laughs) So yeah, I don't think a lot of people were paying much attention to what was going on that night.
0: So you you and your friends were in tuning in for Frank Gorshin. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he was pretty good. though. Oh no, I love he him.
1: He really was. He's so talented.
0: Well, I mean, most people know him as the Riddler, but he was on he I think he was on the first Ed Sullivan show with the Beatles, was he not?
1: He absolutely was. He was doing impersonations and he is brilliant. Besides the fact that he can do all the voices and the faces, he even does the body. You
0: oh know, yeah. He does, uh, he's amazing! Yeah, it was just an interesting thing that you know everybody always talks about the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but the you know the acts around them were you know some of the biggest acts of the day in their own genres. I mean, in one of them, Davy Jones is doing a performance piece from Oliver.
1: It's that same night. Oh, it is.
0: That, it is the first one.
1: Yep, it's that night. He is the little boy, um, just very inconsequentially. Mentioned. I mean, he he isn't even the star, but you see him and the camera flashes on him, but yes, it's that exact same night.
0: And he said, I don't know if this is just apocryphal, but afterwards, you know, he saw what the kind of adulation that the Beatles were getting, and he said, you know, maybe Broadway's not where the, you know, the big hits are. Maybe I should, you know, go a different route. And that was when he started to formulate wanting to be a pop or rock musician.
1: Well, you know, that same exact thing happens to Phil Collins because through um, a modeling and acting agency that he's been involved with in London, when the Beatles need that audience at the end of um, the filming of A Hard Day's Night to film the Scala Theater, quote-unquote, live performance, he is given a pass to get in to see it, And he really is not too excited about going to it. He's not a big Beatles fan, but he knows it's an honor to be chosen as a member of the audience, and his face might get on film. So he waits in the bitter cold for an hour and a half, two hours, to get into the theater, and finally they're admitted. Then he begins to see the magic happen around him, the screaming, the throwing things, the jumping up and down, and, you know, the Scala is pretty controlled compared to a real concert. Oh, yeah. And he's like, wait a minute. Now I know what I want to do.
0: It's not acting. I want to be in a band. Um, And it's funny. I'm very, very glad you brought up Hard Day's Night because I have a bullet point written down here that I was going to interject later, but you already did the hard work for me and put it out there. Um, I I was reading a piece um, because, obvious, for the people who don't know what my book is going to be about, it's about uh, Groucho Marx's famous stooge, Margaret Dumont, who is in all of their movies. And... um, I read an essay comparing um, The Hard Day's Night, they said it could have been, you know, in, in another time it could have been a Marx Brothers movie. Yeah. yeah. And
1: There's no doubt about it. In fact, my father, who was kind enough to take me to see it, <coughs> excuse me, um, said to me after it was over with, well, would you like to sit through it and see it again? Because in the 60s you could do it Oh, that. yeah. As long as you had a ticket, you could sit and just watch it again. And I said, Danny, you'd really do that? And he said, yeah, they're just like the Marx
0: Brothers. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that they bring it up. And they, even in the other, I I have often said that the um, help really, really could have been a Marx Brothers, like a psychedelic Marx Brothers movie because it's yeah. so that slapstick and, you know, strange, non-sequitur humor. And each of them has their own specific roles that even then they were kind of typecast into. You know, Ringo is the, the gentle one who's living in, in a... Uh, I forgot what I forgot. Who's living in the sunken bed in help?
1: That's John. Oh, that's
0: right. And it's just—it's almost like a Marx Brothers movie. And it's funny to look at them now because it's been a while since I've seen all of them, and I've been starting to watch them more because they're become uh, the Beatles movies have been coming out in authoritative editions for criter- Criterion Collection, and it's fascinating to see them with new eyes. Um, that was another question I wanted to ask you is. Out of all of the Beatles movies, which I'm sure you've seen every single one of them, which one do you think is the most entertaining purely as a movie?
1: Well, it's funny you should say that because I, too, have a little podcast. And it's called She Said, She Said, and it's on Blog Talk Radio. And my partner on the blog cast, Lena Stagg, who did the Recipe Record series. I don't know if you know those, Stephen. They are amazing. I think you'd fall in love with them. They're books that combine cooking with music so instead of having a wine list to step as you are cooking you have a music list and it used to be kind of hard to enjoy that because you had to either go to youtube and call up all the songs but now with dare i say her name she's going to perk her ear up alexa (laughs) uh, all you have to do is ask her to play the song and you're set, so while you're cooking, you can play all the songs recommended in the book, but she and I are getting ready to do a show on that very topic, and she asked me which movie I preferred, and hands down, without a doubt, my favorite is Help. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a tremendous James Bond spoof with all the elements, (laughs) you know, instead of having the souped-up car that can go underwater and fly, you have that Harrods band that spits tax on the road, (laughs) and you have the captions of each exotic location that the Bondian Beatles are going to, you have the disguises, you have every single element that's in a James Bond movie, it's just funny, and it's a brilliant, brilliant spoof, and to me, you see more of the Beatles' personalities, actually, than you see in Hard Day's Night, John called Tony Barrow, their publicist, at one point during the making of A Hard Day's Night and said, look, Alan Owen said he was going to portray us as who we really were, but he hasn't. He's making me into the wise, cracking, smart aleck. He's making Paul into the cute beetle the way that everyone thinks he is. And he's making George into the quiet one. And George is the most talkative of all of us. And he's making Ringo into the adorable one. And Ringo is tough. And he goes, we hate this. But, you know, basically Tony said, it's just a movie, John. Get over it. John said, it isn't a movie. The title of it is Beatlemania, which was the first title. And as far as I know, we're the only band with a John, Paul, George, and Ringo in it. The fans are going to believe it's us. And it's not us. And he was just livid. And I think they finally talked him down from the ledge. But um, you know he, he really thought that A Hard Day's Night was a caricature. And I think you see more of John's cynicism in little snarling comments and help. You see more of Paul being like, for example, when he's strumming the girl as a guitar, the girl in the bikini, and he accidentally flips his hands ac- across her breast. You see more of the risque, uh, as Cynthia called Paul, the town bull. Uh, you see glimpses of who they really were and help. So I, I
0: prefer help. And it's funny that um, in those archetypes you brought up, you just described all of the Marx Brothers, the funny one, the cute one, the silent one, and you know the one who's at the end, the Ringo. And you just yep. described Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo. So there's another. I always tell people that if you like the Marx Brothers movies, go to see the Beatles movies or vice versa depending on. Um, there's another person I want to bring up that Another reason that Help is so good is it has one of the greatest, I would say, underrated but brilliant character actors in the world, and that's Victor Spinetti, who is also in Hard Day's Night. So um, I know he was at Fest for Beatles fans a few years ago, and then quite soon after he died. Did you have any encounters with him?
1: I did. A good friend of mine named Adam Forrest, who created and runs the website Beatlesnews.com, is the largest Beatles website in the world was very, very good friends with Victor. And Adam has done so many kind things for me. And he said, Jude, I'm asking you, would you please go up and introduce yourself to Victor and and get his um, autograph for a friend of mine? I promised her that I would get it. And if you'll mail it to me, I'll give it to her. And I was like, oh, please don't ask me to do that. i <laughs> just really young. I'm very shy. I mean, no I'm, an, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. quiet Recluse, introvert, sequestered away researcher, and I'm, don't make me do this. Please, <laughs> please do this for me. So I went up, introduced myself, told him that Adam had sent me, and he said, "Oh, sit down, sit down. I know about you. You're the one writing the books about John. John was one of my dearest friends ever. Let's talk." Oh wow. And he spent a good half hour just visiting with me and chatting about John and sharing his remembrances. And you know what a sweet person. He was, Victor
0: was a genuinely nice guy. I sang Mozart with him when I saw, <laughs> because I was at that um, when he was at Fest for Beatles fans. I must have been two, 2000 something. I can't even remember yeah. what year it was. But um, I was there and my dad brought up that I was training to be an opera singer. And all of a sudden he starts singing and then I joined along with him. And it was just this impromptu, strange Combination of I must have been what like seventeen years old yeah. singing with yeah. Victor, and then he I had a VHS copy of Help that I still have, and he signed the cover of it. <gasps> oh,
1: that he wasn't he he was truly a very loving man, and you can see it's funny you know how everyone portrays John to be the snarly Beetle. They always say John Lemon, and <laughs> you know uh, make all these <laughs> references to him being tart. But when you ask, who is Victor's dearest friend of the Beatles? John. Who does Larry Kane write that he preferred on the 1964 tour? Who was he closest to? John. When Ivor Davis writes the Beatles and me on tour, who does he say he had the biggest camaraderie with? John. Art Shriver, who was he closest to? John. It always comes back to John, even though we pretend to think he's the one that's unapproachable.
0: Well, that's also, um, I think, consensually that... Um, John is often seen now, in hindsight, as the funniest Beatle, too, and the most fun to be around because he had such a, that wicked, acerbic sense of humor, sort of like Groucho, where you just wanted to be around him because he never knew what was going to come out next. And he was just, he was just, you know, that personality that people just wanted to be next to and didn't know where John would go. And that's, you know, it's the sign of someone who's intelligent and has, and I I mean, suffice it to say, John had a magnetic personality.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's not to say that he didn't have a bad day. Oh, no, of course. You can see it when he's mad.
0: And,
1: (laughs) you know, you walk into an interview and he has that look on his face and you're like, oh, no. Oh, this isn't going to go well.
0: Well, um... With any intelligent, funny person, I mean, um, not to keep bringing this back to the Marx Brothers, but Groucho, one of the last interviews he did was with Bill Cosby. And you can tell he just wasn't having a good day, or maybe he didn't like Bill Cosby, but it's that same thing. The minute I clicked on the video, I said, oh, this this isn't going to be good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not good at all. But, you know, every Beatle handled it differently because in one of the very last concerts of the 1964 North American tour, The Beatles stroll in, they sit at the table, and Paul picks up a sheet of paper and begins to doodle. And he doesn't answer one single (laughs) question. Even the questions that he would ordinarily answer, uh, for example, what are your political views? Paul was always the guy that answered that. He was their PR man, and he would be the one that would handle the tough questions, but he refuses to answer. And about three-fourths of the way through the interview someone asked what kind of education the Beatles have and John laughingly says not a very good one <laughs> and Paul gets furious and says how dare you say that we had great educations and then they kind of get into it and you can see that he and John have had a fight right before they've gone into the room and that's why he's not talking but instead of being snarly he just got quiet oh. So you know, each of them had a way of dealing with stress
0: well, you know, that's what people often forget. Not just about the Beatles, but about, you know, any celebrity who is a human being is they're a human being. They had their good days, their bad days, you know. You know how it is when something sets us off and we have a bad day, but we don't have bad days in front of, you know, 120,000 screaming fans.
1: Amen.
0: <laughs>
1: that's the truth. That is really the truth and you look at what they endured. Between the 19th of August, 1964, and the 21st of September, how did they do it? One to two concerts every day. Get on a plane, of course, risking your life. People are tearing you to pieces. Oh, yeah. The car is smashed in. One of the cars was rolled over. You have to get there in an ambulance or a laundry truck. Finally, you make it to the plane, and then you fly to the next city, and then you fight people, and then you give television interviews, radio interviews, press conferences in every city, and perform again, and then you go again, and this is day after day after day. How did they do it?
0: Well, that's one of the things that comes up, you know, when people ask the question, you know, why did the Beatles stop touring? And I believe one of the points is that, you know, they couldn't hear. To a certain extent because you know the stadium speakers you know they were drowned out by this wall of sound and they said you know it got to the point where it wasn't music anymore it was just a circus
1: yeah at one point louise harrison comes to hear them perform live on the 1964 tour and i hate to keep going back to this but of course this is what should have known better volume four is about so this is what i'm researching right now it's all fresh in my mind but she shows up, and they all hug her and everything, and they're talking to her backstage before they go on, and George starts tuning his guitar, and she says, wait a minute, you're tuning your guitar? <laughs> they're not going to hear you. And he said, you know, I am always definitely afraid that for some reason they're going to quit screaming, and when they do, they're going to find out that not only can we not sing, but our guitars are not. in
2: <laughs> And
1: so he always prepared... The one night, the one precious night, kind of chokes me up to talk about it. But when they went to the Indiana State Fair, they had to perform their afternoon gig indoors. And then they had to move outdoors because there was a (laughs) judging of a contest (laughs) indoors. They moved out to the racetrack for their second performance. And those well-behaved little Midwestern kids sat and listened. And they even sang along with the songs. And the Beatles could hear themselves. And they had had a pretty tough go up to Indiana. And that night, John was really sort of fighting back tears when he was singing If I Fell. Because it was a beautiful night. They were under the stars. Every one of those thousands of fans knew the words to his songs. And he could hear them that sound rise up under that night sky it was just it to him it was a goosebump moment so once in a while they could hear
0: themselves sing. You have that feeling that that's you know at the end what they really wanted was not the screaming fans but for people to hear what they were doing because they they poured so much of their efforts into the songwriting and playing and perfecting that they wanted people to hear what they were doing and I mean I'm sure they appreciated you know the fans that they had but they really wanted to just be heard
1: yeah and you always treasure when when you know that what you've done has made a difference um you know the very fact that you were sweet enough to read that quote from me at the beginning of the hour that that you remembered something that I said that will be in my heart forever and the fact that those Girls, well, and fans, there were fans of all, There were boys, girls, mothers, fathers, whatever. The fact that they were all singing along. Paul still does it. He still gives the audience several chances to sing along because that is what it's all about.
0: Exactly, and I know, because I actually saw Paul in Milwaukee three years ago. And he was, yeah. he's, he's like the Energizer Bunny. You know, it was um, almost four hours, 38 songs. He never left the stage once. And it was, I just,
1: it was, I saw him too in Bossier City, same thing, and I never saw him take a sip of water, did you?
0: No, and then he was, uh, did he do the thing where he was on the piano and it lifted off of the ground way up, you know, to the top of the stage?
1: Yeah.
0: It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's not, and, you know, the, there were other musicians who were walking off and getting a drink, but him, nothing. No. And he didn't tire either, you know, because he's in his 70s now, and you would think that, you know, He would get tired after a while, and you don't need to, even, you know, someone like Stevie Nicks needs to go in the wings for a second and say, hey, I need a, you know, a drink of water or something, nothing. Yeah, Yeah.
1: I mean, even Marco Rubio needed a sip of
0: water. And it's almost like, um, the Beatles had that kind of vaudeville mentality that, you know, we just like to perform. We want, you know, people to know who we are. We want them to laugh. We want them to cry. And we want to entertain them. We don't, you yeah. know, we don't want to be the idols. We just want to be, you know, the jesters.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that is the whole difference. You, there were eight hundred and some odd bands, Merseyside, Side, and a lot of them, in the days when they were dreaming of becoming famous, their goal, even Rory Storm and the Hurricanes or the foremost, their goal was to become rich and famous, and. To a certain extent, when John would sing money, that's what I want. I know he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be rich, but what they really wanted was what they had in the Cavern Club: the people that listened, the people that sang along, the people that danced, the people that adored them. They wanted that. They wanted that love and that recognition that their music was touching lives more than they wanted to be rich and famous. And so Beatlemania didn't really fill that objective. But when they got back into the studio after Candlestick Park and they began again to record music that was going to be heard, that I think was, was the time that they were happiest. And of course, then they began fighting with each other and everything goes downhill. But you know, that's only to be expected that you had a lot of alpha males in that <laughs> group. And it's a wonder that they stayed together as long as
0: they did. <laughs> well, it's funny. You gave me another perfect segue. You must be reading my mind because yeah. you've taken us back into the studio. And I want to talk about the person who, I mean, the term the fifth Beatle has been thrown around so many times, but the only person who I would say deserves that title more than anyone else is George Martin, who started as you know a classical musician and brought that, and it's He's special to me because being a classical musician I see his influence when he started to produce their records so um, I know Ken Womack just wrote a brilliant first volume of a biography on George Martin so I just wanted to see what words you had about him in particular
1: Well I'm holding his book Ken's book in my hand as we speak <laughs> I was just getting ready to say well if you haven't read Maximum <laughs> Volume The Life of Beatles producer George Martin let me recommend it I am heavily into Ken's book right now because you know, as I said, the Beatles are in the process of recording Beatles for sale. Um, and I think that George Martin was brilliant on many levels. Number one, he was smart enough to know when to guide and when to step aside, when to assert his belief that they should do something. For example, no, we are not going to play da 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 dum, dum, da we are going to sing it. And I don't like your ending on that song. And John, you need to speed Please Please Me up and not make it a slow, romantic ballad, but to make it a (laughs) toe-tapper. He knew when to recommend, but he also knew as they matured and gained confidence and musical dexterity to step back and to let them take the lead. And even though he was better educated than they in the musical arena, to let these natural geniuses make the decisions. He also was brilliant enough to take the -the off-the-cuff ideas that John had, make me sound like a guru on a mountainside (laughs) far away, and turn it into an actual sound. Now, I like the beginning of take three and I like the ending of take five can you piece them together well they're not in the same tempo oh that's okay you can do it (laughs) Uh, you know he martin was a genius but not just in what he imposed but in what he didn't impose on them
0: one of my favorite radio shows i i'm sure you've heard of it is the bbc's desert island discs and george martin did two brilliant episodes of that and nor- near the end of one of them, he said, "Towards the end, um, the Beatles were teaching me rather than the other, uh, the other way around." He said, "You know, they got to a point where you know I could just I could just leave them and they could do what I was doing with them." And he said that you know it was a proud moment when he finally realized that you know these boys now know what they're doing.
1: Yeah. That's what a teacher is all about. I have a quote that I carry in my wallet that said, let those teach who have a calling, it is never just a job. And he had a calling. He was the right man in the right place at the right time. I'm so glad that none of the other people selected the Beatles because he was truly the right component for them. Justice Ringo, although I adore Pete Best, could not know a nicer, finer, man than Pete Best. He he never complains about the Beatles. He has never said a nasty word about them. He is a good, good man. But Ringo was the right component for the Beatles, and George Martin was the right component. However, that being said, my selection for the fifth Beatle, you know, is Cynthia
0: Lennon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And why is that?
1: She was the only one that was there from beginning to end. Back in the early, early days when they were still the quarrymen, she would stand in the jacaranda for hours and almost doing a thing that you'd see on Survivor, where she would take John's microphone to a broomstick and and would hold it for him because he had no mic stand for two hours or more while he would sing. You can imagine how tired her arms were. On her honeymoon night, when he offered to bring her with him to the gig that night, establishing that habit of bringing his wife along, she said, no, I'm not going with you anymore. Um, I'm gonna go and move into our new apartment. You need to go and do your thing. And several times when he would say, I'm gonna give it all up and be here for you, she would say, no, you need to chase your dream. Over and over, there were many opportunities where Cynthia could have stopped the Beatles very easily. People portray John as not loving her. He loved her desperately, he called her every single night of the <laughs> North American tour. And she could have ended it all, but she would always say, no, no, I'm not important. What's important is the Beatles. You go out there and do what you need to do.
0: So she was really, you know, she nurtured him enough to give him that confidence to say, hey, no matter what happens, I'm just going to be here. I know that you're on the right path.
1: Yeah. And 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 even when, yeah, she says, I know that he had several flings when he was off on tour, but that's not important. He loves me, and I love him, and I'm going to make sure that he succeeds.
0: And it's a very noble thing to kind of be that selfless to know that, hey, you know, he might be playing around. It's kind of um, like that final scene in Funny Girl with Barbra Streisand where she says, you know, I love my man. You know, he's crass, he's terrible, but, you know, at the end of the day, I know that he loves me back. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, It was... Truly a love story, and every time that I hear John sing, I'm in love for the first time, don't you know what's going to last? I always just say, jerk.
0: <laughs> really?
1: You know, because it, it isn't true. It isn't so true. He, they absolutely went through hell together, and from the, the debacle of the Foils luncheon, which Cynthia warned him for weeks he needed to prepare a speech, and he didn't, and he thought he had it covered. And he didn't have it covered because the people, when Brian called Foyles to tell them that he would be giving the speech, not John, the message wasn't passed along, and Cynthia covered for him, so many times she would make things right when they really weren't right. She all, and she loved the Beatles, she traveled with them in the beginning, in the early days, she traveled with them on the road a lot, and she washed clothes and mended clothes and made sure that they needed what they got. She was definitely a big part of their success.
0: Yes, i have you know, just being an ancillary person. I mean, I know quite a bit about the Beatles, not anything, even one one thousandth of what you know, but it's interesting to hear, you know, because I've talked to several different people and every one of them has a different, you know, ultimate fifth Beatle. You know, some people yes. say that it was Billy Preston. Some people say it was George Martin. Some people say... Uh, you're, but you're the first person who I've heard say Cynthia.
1: Well, there's. A, I did an article for Rebeat Magazine. I think it's Rebeat.com. The 10 Reasons Why Cynthia Lennon is the Fifth Beatle. And just the longevity and her record and her history with them. And the many times that she could have put an end to things uh, and didn't. And stepped aside. Um, and Larry Kane says, and so does... Um, Tony Barrow, without Cynthia Lennon, John would have lost his stability. She was his piece, and without her, he
0: would have crumbled. Oh, wow. Going back to something you said at the beginning of the interview, um, we were talking about the kind of novels and the kind of books that you write, and you actually turned me on to someone that is probably in the past 100 years was the biggest progenitor of this kind of genre, and that's Irving Stone. And you said to read um, The Agony and the Ecstasy. And I mean, reading those books, it's fascinating to see that interweaving of fact and you know, narrative fiction. So um, I want to speak with you a little bit just about what books influence you the most. I mean, you brought that one up because obviously you said it had a huge impact on you.
1: I did. I remember I read all of his books, Those Who Love and Men to Match My Mountains, and all of them when I was in high school. And then when I read the book that he did on Charles Darwin, The Origin, it's about 2,000 pages about Darwin going around the world and collecting all of his artifacts and his rocks and his stones. And It's a pretty dry book. And I thought, if people will read 2,000 pages about Charles Darwin and his rocks... (laughs) They're going to want to know about the greatest rocker in the girl, John Lennon. And I went into the project thinking I would do what Irving Stone did and write it like a historical novel or historical fiction. But the, as I started researching it and found out that Beatles fans had something they called fan fiction, oh. which they disdained, where you could take it and turn it into a fiction story, I Oh quickly yes quickly had to switch gears and go with historical narrative and tell... You know, never embellish, keep it right to the storyline because they all, they look down their nose at fan fiction. And so I did not want to walk into that realm. But um, Irving Stone is one of my favorites. Another one of my great, great favorites because the Beatles, you know, three of the Beatles were Irish. Um, Only Ringo is not. Of course, James Paul McCartney, obviously Irish. John Olenon is his family name. And George Harrison had huge ties to Ireland. His mother, when he goes to Dublin, the Beatles go to Dublin in 1963 to perform. His, his mother is there visiting his Irish family, and she meets him because she's over with her family. So um, <clears throat> when you're writing about the Beatles, you really have to remember that Liverpool is 80% Irish in the early 1960s. Scouse, the Liverpool language, their colloquial expression, um, is Irish. And so I read a lot of books by writers who will keep me immersed in the Irish language and the Irish heritage. And my very, very, very favorite one is Maeve Benchy. Mm -hmm. Um, She died about two years ago, but I have read all 14 or 15 of her books twice. Uh, it really took me a whole year of grieving to get over her loss, although we never met. And right now, I'm reading um, Leon Uris's book Trinity about the struggles of the Irish in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So that really helps me to stay connected to that scouse attitude. Uh, you're you're looking at what is called Liverpool is called the capital of Ireland. Huh. So. You know, it really helps to read a lot of Irish writers. One of my
0: favorite Irish writers that I'm sure you've heard of um, is Colm tobin who wrote oh, Brook. Yes. I adore his books, and you know, I li- another desert island disc I listened to. He, um, you know, he was had this most beautiful Irish music, and then in the middle of it, he said, "Oh, and this is someone that my mother hated, and when I lived in Ireland, and said, you know, turn that awful music off." And it was Joni Mitchell, and he said, "How." how it informed, you know, and you can see Joni Mitchell in his writing, that simplicity that, but that deep, powerful emotion that he writes with. And, you know, he's one of those authors where I've read almost every one of his books and there's no clunkers whatsoever.
1: No, no. I love all of them. Um, Brooklyn, I just finished Brooklyn. I read that not too long ago, but he, he is a great, great writer. It's funny that, that I think the British, Hold more value in Joni Mitchell than we even do here, because you know, in Love Actually, you remember the wife in Love Actually said that she learned to love from Joni Mitchell. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, and um, come to being, we all have those authors that you know. Every now and then, you'll find a book that you have to read, you know, either once a year or every two years or whatever. But I do read one of his books every single year, and it's called The Testament uh, of the Other Mary. The Testament of Mary, and it's a fictionalized, very very short, like ninety five uh, pages, and it's a fictionalized account of Mary's days, af- Mary's days and years after the crucifixion, and instead of you know becoming a poster woman for Christianity, she becomes bitter and angry, and it's a monologue. It's in the first person, first person, and she just writes about you know how a real person. Would react to seeing her son, you know, up and everybody around her saying, Oh, but this was, you know, the good thing that happened. This was supposed to happen. But she said, You know, at the end of the day, this is my son that you're talking about. And it's. There's
1: some of that in, uh, I don't know if you read um, uh, Walter Wangerin, W A N G E R I N. No. But he he writes um, that same sort of genre, and he wrote a book called Jesus, and in it, Mary is very resentful, very, you know, scared. And of course, you know the scene where she sends the brothers to bring him home. Oh yes. Because, you know, she's terrified at this point. But as it gets closer and closer to the crucifixion, she is like, why? What was the point of sending him here to do this to him? She becomes very, that's a mom, that's
0: a mom. Exactly, and um, uh, I have to recommend to both you and our listeners that I don't listen as a rule to audiobooks, but the audiobook for The Testament of Mary is read by Meryl Streep, and it is, it's, you just sit there in awe of both the book, which in itself is brilliant, but the performance, and it's, I can't recommend it enough, it's just, it's one of those perfect novels that's short, sweet, does what it needs to do, but leaves such that such a searing impact. Are there any other novels that have, um, or any books, nonfiction or fiction, that have left that indelible mark on you?
1: I think the early days of Anita Shreve, all of her early books, uh, from The Pilot's Wife to The Weight of Water, now, and I hate to say this because I still think she is an extremely good writer, but she's turning them out so fast Mm -hmm. now that I think she's lost a bit of her edge. But all of her early books were such gems. I even wrote to her one time and said, "You would you would you consider mentoring me? Oh, wow. I would do you know whatever you want me to do. I would be glad to do it. But you are so good." And then I think there's always that lure of money that gets authors to write faster and faster, oh, yeah. and you know to relinquish what they need to do to to be utterly great. But I would say her first four or five books were. Perfection.
0: Well, I mean, just look at James Patterson if you want to see a commercial writer who was once, you know, brilliant, but got lured by the oh, there needs to be a new book every two weeks, and it's yep. that—that's part of the down. I mean, neither of us have had that, you know, <laughs> we we haven't had that level of, you know, people behind us saying, hey, write faster because then you'll make, you, but we'll all make more money. But it's one of those things that you think about that, you know, what comes first, the inspiration or the um, cattle prod saying, hey, the faster you write, the more money we get.
1: Yeah, and you know, that's interesting that you say that because the Beatles were under that same structure. They were told that they had to put out two LPs a year no matter what. And in 64, with the Beatles having to make a film to do a world tour, to do a North American tour, John writes and promotes a book. They have the London movie premiere, the Liverpool movie premiere, and they still manage to squeeze in visits to a few other countries and turn around and do a UK tour in the fall of 1964. They still put out two very remarkable LPs. They never seem to sacrifice quality for the quantity of work they were doing.
0: Exactly, because, you know, People always say, oh, the Beatles, you know, their career together was, you know, in retrospect, you know, seeing how long the Rolling Stones have been together by now was incredibly short. But there was nothing of a lesser quality that they came out with, even, even with the White Album that is so long that you would think that there would be some, you know, just totally uninteresting things. Every single thing they put out together was golden. And it was amazing that they were able to do that.
1: Yeah. There, there were no throwaways. I mean, even some of the very, very obscure songs, you look back at an early, early song, like There's a Place. Even that is a very good song. The sound may be uh, 60s dated. It really has that early 1960s sound, but it is a beautiful song. And the words are so poignant still. Um, even songs that John claimed to hate, like It's Only Love, which embarrassed him because it was about his marriage falling apart. It's still a gorgeous song. There are one or two lines that aren't so great, but on average, it's far superior to the other songs that were being written at the time. So there really are no throwaway songs.
0: Yeah, I mean, even, I mean, I always say that Lennon and McCartney wrote, I think it was Lennon and McCartney, wrote one of the greatest. Um, comedy songs to ever be put on a record and they sl- they must have just slipped it in there at the last second at the end of Abbey Road, you have Her Majesty and it's, you know, you think, you know, oh, it's just, you know, a few seconds long, but it's one of the funniest things that the Beatles ever did together.
2: Yeah.
0: And people, it's never, it's never the one that people say, oh, that's my favorite Beatles song, but it's in my, you know, top 10 because it is so unexpected and that's part of the allure of the Beatles is that they were so unexpected in so many ways because you never knew what sort of route they're going to take next.
1: Yeah, and if you look at You Know My Name, you sort of get a glimpse of what they were like when the cameras weren't rolling and when the microphones were off. That's the kind of thing they were doing all the time, entertaining themselves with... Voices and acting out scenarios and just having fun together. So that's a great historical glimpse,
0: too. Well, as we wind down here, I mean, this hour has gone so fast already. <laughs> it's hardly felt like anything. But um, since the um, I do live in Chicago, I want you... I know this is putting you on the spot, but I want you to tell me... Because I know you've had a lot of interactions with her. Tell me your funniest Terry Hemmert story.
1: Oh, Terry. Yeah, I don't know if I have a funny one. Terry is always so, so sweet and loving. Even in the year after her surgery, when she was in a wheelchair, she would, you know, we would say, Terry, do you want us to help you get up on the stage and, and get to your spot where she would interview all of the authors at the Fest for Beatles fans? And she would say, Absolutely not. I can manage it myself. <laughs> she is one of the strongest and yet sweetest kindest people you will ever meet, and I absolutely cannot imagine going to the Fest for Beatles fans without having Terry there. She would always come to my booth, find me, spend time talking and chatting with me, and one time, she and and Frida Kelly were walking together, and she stopped right there, you know, with Frida. They were headed somewhere and spent a good 10 minutes just chatting as they were en route to something else. So, she she is a jewel a
0: keeper. Yeah, I've become kind of this strange um, coincidence in her life that I keep running into her in the strangest place. I was um, I was at the, the Chicago Symphony. She does this you know um, these talk back things before um, the symphony concerts sometimes. But I was at one that she wasn't even scheduled to be at, and all of a sudden she was in the same row as I was. And, just, <gasps> and this is the weirdest one was I was at Chicago Opera Theater, which is in Millennium Park. And I was at a dress rehearsal for a production of the Magic Flute. And I mean, this is the dress rehearsal. Only the balcony was open, and there were like 25 people there. And she she was standing right there. And I, we made eye contact, and it's just, she's, we've become kind of this strange running gag that we never know where we're going to run into Terry Hammert next. <laughs>
1: I bet she had a startled look on her face when she saw
0: you oh yes and she's always gracious she's never like oh god here's that you know here's that kid again but it was it's just amazing that you know I, and then of course the Beatles fans I remember one year I gave her um, a cupcake that I dyed blue to look like a blue meanie and now every time she looks at me she goes cupcake <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Could have a worse name really no
0: exactly I mean I'm just glad that she remembers who I am because I yeah. mean you know in our I mean she has a day named after her in Chicago she is you know an Institute she's a god in Chicago and I'm glad that you know she's still be she's still able to do breakfast with the Beatles and she's she's never stops she's like Paul she's like the energizer bunny she just keeps going and going and going but she has you know such a quality personality and those are the kind of people I like to feature on this show maybe one day hopefully I can convince her to come on this show but oh,
1: she is. And she has such good stories Exactly. To tell. I love her stories of Paul at the White House. You have to get her into oh, yes.
0: that. Yeah, I saw the, I saw it when they were first broadcasting that. And um, my dad and I were watching it together, and we said they cut to the audience. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's Terry. And, she, you know, just, it looked like she was, you know, a 10-year-old sitting there, you know, watching the Beatles all over again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we all act that way. And the funny thing is that everyone... If you ask people, what is it that attracted you to the Beatles, they all have the same answer. They spoke to me. They saw me. They were <laughs> singing for me. I think they really did sing me. You know, it they found a way to make each and every person feel as if they were noticed. And that changes everything.
0: It's a funny story. It's apropos of nothing except this topic. It's not even about the Beatles. But Dick Cabot as a young boy, went to uh, see Bob Hope. Um, perform in Nebraska and, you know, do a promotion for one of his movies. Years later, or he he met him afterwards because he staked himself outside of his dressing room door. They talked for probably, what, two or three seconds before Bob Hope wandered away. And years and years later, cut to Dick Cavett has his own show, and he has Bob Hope on. And yeah. the first question, or the first thing he says when they sit down is Dick Cavett says, you know, um, I stood outside... Um, your dressing room, I talked to you for a second when you were in Lincoln, Nebraska and <laughs> Bob Hope turns to the audience and then turns back to him and says, oh my god, that was you? <laughs> but um, the greats really have that ability to make you feel like you're the only one in the room and that you could say, you know, you know they were, like, um, I saw a few months ago at United Center, I saw Stevie Nicks and I had that same moment where it was nobody else in there except her and I. She was talking specifically to me And same thing with Paul, same thing with all of the great, even, it doesn't matter what genre it is even, because I've had that experience at operas, I've had it at um, book signings and author readings. Like a few months ago, I just um, saw a poetry reading by Joyce Carol Oates, and it was that same thing where, you know, time stands still, and you're just sitting there in awe of this raw lump of talent that you see in front of you and, you know, that you've read thousands of times. And I'm sure when you saw Paul, that it was that those same emotions come back.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But I'll tell you something else, and that is, you have that same quality, and you always make people feel special. You always make them feel as if they are the most important person, and. I greet you at the beginning of a great career. You remember that face, Oh,
0: right? yes, yes, yes. You've uh, Actually, this is a time to plug my own book because you wrote the introduction for my first book, The Mistakes of a Better World, and you used that exact quote. Right. And That's I, right. And I brilliantly, I mean, it's brilliant, I, t- I mean, your uh, forward to my book, I quote more than anything else because it was, like you said, you're the same way, you're so genuine. You make people feel special. You know, when I first asked to interview you at the uh, Beatlefest that year, you know, anyone could have just said, ah, you know what, you're 19 years old, you know, come back when you have, you know, a reputable paper you're writing for. But you acted like I was the most important person in the room for that whole half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it was. And, you know, people don't forget that.
1: Well, thank you very much. I feel the exact same way about you, and I cannot wait for this new book to come out.
0: And I can say the same thing for yours. So plug um, all of your things that you want to plug right now, your website, your new book that's coming out, and anything else. This is your time.
1: uh, The website is very easy to remember. It's JohnLennonSeries.com. JohnLennonSeries.com And all of the books from volume one Volume one should have been there Is John's childhood and teen years Up to the day that Brian Epstein Offers the Beatles management And they leave Liverpool behind them So they've all met each other Even Ringo, though Ringo's not in the band They've been to Hamburg twice they, They're ready to step onto the world stage When that book ends book two is only available on Kindle. It's sold out in uh, physical copy. We've done five printings of the first book. We'll keep printing yet because it's the drug that gets you started.
2: <laughs> <not many>
1: <laughs> but um, two is sold out, but you can still get it in Kindle. That's Shivering Inside. That's 1961-63, the rise to British fame when everyone in England and Scotland and Ireland and Germany know the Beatles but no one in America does and then volume three she loves you of course is the great great dawning of Beatlemania when they play the London Palladium which is the Ed Sullivan show of Britain they do the Royal Command performance they go to Paris for three weeks and then hit number one in America and come and do the Ed Sullivan show go to Miami the Washington DC theater concert that they do in the round and really just are mega stars And then book four begins as they fly back to England to do a hard day's night and the world tour and the North American tour and the UK tour do the movie, finish the movie, John does his book, and they get ready for 1965, which will be book five. So they're all on there. You can pre-purchase Should Have Known Better, which is volume four. And if you do, you will get the collector's poster that we are going to do of the cover. So that will be, we're offering that all through February and March, that if you pre-purchase, you will get that collector's poster. So johnlennonseries.com, and people, I hope that they will come because we do a newsletter, and we'll keep you posted on the book and how it's shaping up.
0: Wonderful. And um, I have an anecdote here for the end, and hopefully <laughs> this won't seem too tacky, but I was at a bookstore just this past week, and... Um, It's a bookstore that every bookstore has one of those glass cases that's, you know, the really expensive books they put in there. And oddly enough, they had the Jewett Sutherland-Kessler trilogy in the glass case, all three of them. Um, And you could take it home for the princely sum of $400. Hey,
1: that was a good deal. Yeah. It was shivering inside. I just so saw that a copy of shivering inside sold week before last for four thousand oh, dollars wow <laughs> now
0: you, so only, you I only
1: sold one to charity i gave all the money to charity and it sold for 900. wow so um if that was a first edition should have been there they're going between 200 and 400 of course i, I don't get any of it yeah. <laughs> um and shivering inside is starting at 400 and i have 18 copies of she loves you left and they'll be sold out so that actually was a really, a really good price. I may buy that from that store.
0: Well, if you want to find them, they're at the Half Price Books in Algonquin, Illinois. <laughs> it's, well, I'm so happy to have you back. It's so nice to hear your laugh and your personality. And I give you my guarantee that I will be at BeetleFest this year. And I will bother you for as long as you let me bother you as, I, as you normally do.
1: I can't wait. And I, you have your invitation To the party,
0: we are going to have a whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, I bet. One, thank you so much again, Jude Kessler, Um, and go to her website, buy the books. I've read every single one of them. Devour them, love them, and I know you will too if you're a true Beatle fan. So this has been the latest episode of The Objectivist Unplugged. As I always say, go on iTunes, go on Facebook, find us, share us, review us, and... um, if you want to hear more fascinating people like Jude, you can look in our archive and suggest more people for the future. So, as um, I always say at my, the beginning of my emails to Jude, I just want to say, hey Jude, and goodbye. And goodbye. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jude Kessler, and everyone have a wonderful I night.
3: I'm going to be sad, I think it's today. Yeah. He's going away He's got a ticket to ride He's got a ticket to ride He's got a ticket to ride But he don't care He says that living with me Is getting him a dog For he would never be free While I was a rocker ticket to ride he's got a ticket to ride he's got a ticket to ride but he don't care I don't know why he's riding so high he ought to think right he'd do right by me before he gets to saying goodbye he ought to think right he'd do right by me He says that living with me is getting him a donya. For he would never be free while I was around. He's got a ticket to ride. He's got a ticket to ride. He's got a ticket to ride, but he don't care. Maybe he don't care.